0: Northeastern England has made incredible contributions, not just to British, but to global history. It was the home of the Venerable Bede, widely regarded as the greatest of all the Anglo-Saxon scholars. More recently, it was the region that gave us the locomotive and the light bulb, and where the first home in the world was lit up by electricity. The people of Northumbria are renowned for their hard work and their heavy drinking. Their militarism, and their machismo, their sociability, and their sentimentality. This culture has deep roots in centuries of dangerous industry and border warfare between England and Scotland. No other part of England is more deeply studded with castles, or more soaked in blood. This fascinating and influential place is brought to life in a best-selling book by Dan Jackson, called The Northumbrians, It was published in 2019 by Hearst Publishers. Welcome to Afterwards. I'm Tom Holland, a historian, here today talking with Dan Jackson about the unique history and culture of Northumbria. And I'm thrilled to be doing this because Northumbrians is the kind of book that I've been wanting to read ever since I used to go there on holiday. It's rich in the very best traditions of local history, but it's the kind of local history that is situated in a much broader perspective. Well, Dan, thanks very much for uh, speaking to me. And just cut straight to the chase, the most obvious thing, the title. You call the book Northumbrians. Northumbria literally means north of the River Humber. But the sense that you're using it, it has a kind of more focused meaning, doesn't it? What do you mean by the Northumbrians? Who lives in Northumbria?
1: Well, I've taken it to mean the people who live between the rivers Tweed and Tees. What was called in the Middle Ages the land between the brine and the high ground and the fresh stream water, an unusually well defined region in English terms. But it's basically our conception of North East England, a northeast that's centred on places like Newcastle, Sunderland, Durham, the counties of Northumberland and Durham, rather than the ancient kingdom of Northumbria, although I attempt in the book to trace the distinctive characteristics of the people of the northeast back to that period.
0: On the cover of the hardback, you have Hadrian's Wall, the probably the most famous shot of the wall. And Hadrian's Wall begins in Newcastle. It begins obviously in Wall's End, <laughs> a clue in the name. Is there a sense in which you can trace Northumbrian identity even back beyond the early medieval kingdom of Northumbria, back to the Roman period, back to the sense of it as a kind of a frontier?
1: Absolutely. And that, that sense of Northumbria's the first big thing to happen to it was the Roman legions arriving and creating this militarised frontier and Hadrian building the bridge over the Tyne, the only bridge named after a Roman emperor outside Rome, I understand, Ponsalius, named after his family. And the martial traditions that followed that militarisation in the 2nd century has been a key part of North East England's story right up until the 20th century. And it's the extraordinary contribution of the region in both the First and Second World Wars, in terms of men and materiel that were produced on the banks of the Tyne, in terms of ships and armaments, but also that kind of slightly macho culture that still prevails in the Northeast and has been the subject of much caricature. But I think you can trace back through centuries of history in what was a dangerous place and then certainly a militarized area, Roman period and medieval period.
0: Because there's a sense, isn't there, in which Hadrian's Wall is still used as the shorthand for the the border between England and Scotland. But also one of the things that slightly mudders the waters here is that the medieval kingdom of Northumbria, which emerges in the aftermath of, of the Roman withdrawal and the abandonment of Hadrian's Wall, actually that kingdom stretches right the way up beyond what is currently the border of England up to the Firth of Forth. And in fact, Northumbrian identity kind of draws on what would now be called Scottish roots as well as English roots, doesn't it? It does, yes. And there are
1: there are much similarities between Northumbrian and Scottish culture, frankly. I mentioned in the book that to a lot of people, I think there's a tendency to see the northeast of England, Northumbria as the sort of overlapping section of a Venn diagram of England and Scotland. Because there are those overlaps in everything from the martial tradition that I touched upon earlier, the building traditions, the taste for classical architecture that endured in the North much as it did in Scotland for longer than the rest of England, the t- traditions of living in flats and tenements. And also, it must be said, our, our enthusiasm for uh, alcoholic beverages, which is another key. It's a cornerstone of Northumbrian <laughs> culture, much as it is in Scotland. So, yes, definitely. And th- those fluid borders can confuse the picture a little bit. But you're right to say that, you know, Hadrian's Walls often it irritates me actually when they always say north of Hadrian's Wall to mean Scotland. Well most of Newcastle's north of Hadrian's Wall. And it never was the Anglo Scottish border, as you know.
0: But if we're talking about the martial traditions, the frontier traditions What comes across from your book is how after the early medieval kingdom of Northumbria collapses in the face of the Vikings, and then the unitary state of England emerges, and then of course to the north a unitary state of Scotland, Hmm. and a border comes to be constructed, and Northumbria is on the English side of that border. Just how brutal was that frontier zone?
1: I slightly flippantly describe places like Reedsdale in Northumberland, which is right on the border, as the hell-manned province of, uh, you know, the the Middle Ages in these islands, because it was so bloody and fought over. And the phrase I like is uh, the ring in which the champions met was used to describe Northumberland in particular because whenever England and Scotland collided with each other, it tended to be there. That's why there's more castles in Northumberland, more battlefield sites in Northumberland than any other English county, why there's no medieval, purely domestic buildings left why? Newcastle was pleased to receive twenty-five percent of William Wallace after he was hacked to death at Smithfield, because the Scots weren't very popular.
0: Because they used to appear over the hill quite often. Well, t- uh, talking of hacking people to pieces, it's important to emphasise to listeners that your book, although it does deal with this incredible sweep of history with learning and deep scholarship, you do also, Dan, have an eye for sensationally grotesque anecdotes. So. Um, <laughs> i'm just going to quote from your book one sunday in 1483 the northumbrian hidesman, robert lorraine was bushwhacked by a scottish raiding party on his way from church butchered into pieces and packed into the saddlebags of his own horse <laughs> that is only one isn't there uh, there's also people being attacked when they're playing football uh, all kinds of things thrill us with um, some of the more grotesque details of what went on in the, in the northumbrian frontier
1: Well, and that was down to those, the border reavers that are quite well known. This sort of, they're sometimes called the English Highland clans, although they existed on the Scottish side of the border as well. They were neither English nor Scottish, but they were incredibly violent and prone to blood feuds and vendettas and hacking each other to pieces and slitting throats and as well as stealing livestock, which was their stock in trade. But it was extraordinarily violent and it was only put down after the Union of the Crowns in 1603 when that border kind of started to settle down a bit. But it was it was this buffer zone between England and Scotland. So there was marcher law. There was the border marches on either side of the Anglo-Scottish border. These families kind of did their own thing to an extent. And what I found really fascinating was to trace how those same families were first transplanted to Ulster during the plantation of Ulster in the 17th century. Partly to get rid of them because they were so awkward and difficult to deal with, but partly because they were so robust and could deal with frontier life in a hostile environment of Northern Ireland as in the 17th century. And then they were transplanted again to the back country of Appalachia and Tennessee and Kentucky and those sort of places. They were the ancestors of the hillbillies, those same families. The ranching culture of the USA was born on the Anglo Scottish borders. Not just in terms of how they reared their livestock, but also that sense of if anyone trespasses on your land, then you've got to face them down. The feud of the Hatfields and the McCoys uh, that was quite famous in American history and all that kind of vendetta and pulling posses together. Posses were first you know, drawn together in the Anglo-Scottish frontier. So it's, in- it's been interesting to trace the roots of some distinctively American, deep south of the USA type culture back to the Anglo-Scottish frontier, which was extraordinarily violent.
0: So that's another theme of the book, is that, again, although this is local history, it's, as you've just illustrated, it's also very much about global history, because the claims you make for Northumbria is that it's had an influence on the rest of Britain, indeed the world beyond Britain, that's really very striking. You've touched on the kind of the frontier traditions, you've touched on the military traditions, but of course Northumbria has also been one of the great cultural centres of the world and been one of the great cultural centres twice. Uh, So you've got the early medieval period when you have Bede and Lindisfarne and all those traditions. And then again in the, the 18th and the 19th centuries with the Industrial Revolution that Northumbria has an absolutely key role in. So would it be fair to sum this up by saying that really Northumbrians is the story of two great golden ages or have there been traditions that have influenced the rest of the country and beyond that have been constant?
1: I'd agree with you, Tom. I think there are two distinct golden ages, which I tried to link in a chapter in the book called Northumbrian Enlightenment, because, I mean, the Scottish Enlightenment is well known, I think, in British... History, whereas the Northumbrian Enlightenment is not as well understood. I think the innovations that emerged from the 18th and 19th century from the Northeast, particularly Stevenson's perfection, not invention really, but perfection of the locomotive in the 1820s, he's a great engineer, as was his son Robert, and they emerged from a distinctively literate, dynamic, local economy in the northeast in the 18th and 19th century that started to have a sense of itself, tracing its lineage back to the first golden age of the so-called dark ages. I don't think people use that term much these days, do they? But the era of Bede and Lindisfarne and keeping the flame of Christianity alive in these islands. You know, there's an embarrassment of riches at places like Wearmouth Jarrow and Bede writing the first history of the English people, but certainly... The extraordinary learning and scholarship that emerged in that period when, you know, there's probably the largest library in Europe in Jarrow at the time. But yes, two distinctive golden ages, which you might say were unusual for what is, frankly, a peripheral part of England outside of that core European arc of prosperity that stretches from southern England through the low countries, the Rhineland to northern Italy. That's tended to be where the most prosperous and influential and richest parts of Europe have been. But we went against the grain slightly, I think.
0: Give us a sense of the industrial might that Northumbria had in its heyday, the role that it played in the industrialisation of Britain and then the world, and just how much it was churning out.
1: Well, it, it's chiefly based on coal. By you know an accident of geology, there is millions upon millions of tonnes of coal under the f- rivers Tyne and Weir. It was described in the 17th century by William Camden, the northeastern general, the coal field, as the hearth that warmeth the south parts with fire. And, you know, London's called the big smoke because of all the, the coal fires, basically, that started to emerge from the 17th century. The growth of London wouldn't have been possible without that source of fuel power that the coal fields produced in the extractive industries, particularly coal, but also lead and so on were a great spur to industrial innovation in everything from the locomotive, which emerged from the Newcastle Roads, as they were called, the wooden railways that emerged early 1700s, right the way through to developments in shipping technology, in power generation. By the mid-18th century, I think it's been calculated that the equivalent fuel power of all the coal that was coming out of Northumberland and Durham was... The equivalent of Kent size area of woodland every year being burned. The wealth of Northumbria and its connection, therefore, to the capital that relied on that source of fuel power was really impressive. And I think in the 18th century, in particular, you get a real sense, 18th and 19th century, of a reciprocal arra- relationship between places like Newcastle and London, that we had something that the capital wanted. And I think as that industry has declined, then the interest of the South in the North has probably declined with it. The sense of the North's power has certainly declined as a result of not having the raw materials that the rest of the world is interested in.
0: So in its heyday, those who are working in the mines, in shipbuilding, things like that, but particularly in the mines, they have a sense of the dignity of what they were doing, that what they were doing mattered. And this was combined with a sense that what they were doing was dangerous and you point out that the two main industries of the northeast coal mining and fishing are both incredibly dangerous and so i thought one of the many fascinating things in your book was the sense you give that this enabled workers in the northeast to have a really kind of particular sense of their own dignity
1: yes exactly and that, i was influenced in that by the fact that my own grandfather was a coal miner and, and, I, and I spent a lot of time with him as a child and he had that amazing sense of pride in his former career. And he missed it, quite frankly, when he retired. He loved the thrill of it, the camaraderie of it, the danger of it, the skill and craft that it required because professions like coal mining were the ultimate skilled work, really. People have a funny opinion of coal mining because they see images of the 1930s when there was a global economic downturn and they see the kind of desolation of modern pit villages which is part of the picture. But, you know, just before the First World War, Northumbrian coal miners were probably the best paid proletarians anywhere in the world. The skilled workers I mentioned meant that they saw themselves as the aristocrats of labour, a a real genuine labour aristocracy. They were the highest paid, they were the most skilled, they were doing the most dangerous but most essential work uh, for the, the greatness of the country. I sometimes get pulled up by people who say things like, well, you shouldn't romanticise coal mining. And certainly, you know, the casualty figures speak for themselves. It's extraordinarily dangerous. The problem is the coal miners romanticised it themselves. My grandfather certainly did. He painted pictures of scenes underground. There's the poetry that emerged from the coal fields. The men in particular loved that work. They found it intensely satisfying. But Many people hated it as well and found it terrifying. But you compare it to certain modern professions, it's hard production line work, which is almost alienating in a way that coal mining wasn't. It wasn't alienating work. It was hard and dangerous and yet thrilling and satisfying at the same time. And nothing that's come after it has replaced that, I think, in the psyche of working people in the Northeast, because it, it wasn't just the work, it was the community that surrounded it, the brass bands, the miners' gala, all that stuff. And it was part of that shaping of the culture of the northeast of England, where relying on one's colleague, a workmate or Mara, as they're known in the northeast, was absolutely essential. And it bred a certain sociability, friendliness, which is still detectable, I think, in northeast culture.
0: Yeah, the, the north-east and its culture has a kind of profile across the country in a way that perhaps other regions of England don't. So the reputation of Newcastle as a party city viz the distinctive character of its footballers is there a kind of common thread joining all those is it bred of this culture that you're talking about
1: i think so there's a chapter in the book called hard work and hedonism because they were two sides of the same coin if people were doing hard dangerous stressful but well-paid work guess what they'd like to do when they had some time off they just went on the piss frankly and the history of northumbrian drinking could fill several volumes but it meant that (laughs) <laughs> this hedonistic culture, particularly as Newcastle. Newcastle's kinda of dominates the northeast. But it was always this vortex. It dominated its industrial Newcastle's not really an industrial city per se, but its hinterlands are. And it dominated those hinterlands. So everyone came into Newcastle the tune to spend their money on clothes. And the history of retail I touch upon in the in the book, which is an important part of the story. But also beer. You still see it. You still see the what you might call the bonnie pit laddies and lassies of the 18th and 19th century, they still manifest down on the quayside and in the big market on any weekend, you know, back in Newcastle now. And, you know, placing Newcastle as one of the world's great party cities alongside Rio de Janeiro and places like that. It's uh, going out, having a good time, showing off, dressing in a way that emphasises your physical comeliness, (laughs) you know, by revealing flesh, you know, you get, you get these accounts from the 18th century and even earlier of complaints about women dressing with clothes that are too tight, you know, to, to emphasise their curves. And the men were the same, you know, with uh, the short jackets and the, uh, the tight shirts and all that sort of thing. And it's a sort of ritual where, you know, getting dressed up was as much part of the fun and thrill of it all as the drinking itself. But these were well-paid people who were fit and healthy and athletically built, both the men and the women, and so there's the kind of showing off aspect, which you still see.
0: So, Dan, you've talked about how the culture of Northumbria is expressed by women, at least as much by men. And yet the working environment that you've been describing is incredibly masculine one, soldiering and coal mining and fishing. How have women historically related to that kind of very masculine working culture? Well,
1: it's interesting that um, it made the Northeast stand out from the rest of the north of England, where it was traditional for men and women to work alongside each other, for example, in the cotton mills of Lancashire and Yorkshire. That just didn't happen in the Northeast. It was a man's world. The world of paid work was a man's world. But coal mining could not have existed without the reserve army of female labour, who I make the point in the book that you could compare miners' wives, you know, much like a groom would be to a horse. Reflecting on my own grandmother, who was never allowed by my grandfather, who was otherwise a progressive in his politics, to go out to work. You know, you need to have me tea on the table. You need to get all my clothes washed and all that sort of thing. And I saw the tail end of that kind of village culture in the 1980s. So it was a masculine world on the surface. But Pittman could not have functioned without their wives shoveling calories down their throats washing their clothes washing them in the bath in front of the fire just like a groom to a horse really it's sometimes debates about could coal mining have been sustainable it did rely on slightly narrowed horizons for women in a way that probably wasn't sustainable by the time we got to the 1960s all oh, that was crumbling away and yet there was still a sort of informal matriarchy in the pit villages a surveillance culture that i noticed as a child the, you know, the twitching neck curtains where gossip was a currency, where there was a sort of competitive domesticity as well. Who had the cleanest front step? Who had the cleanest net curtains? Please don't misunderstand me to think that women weren't working. They were working extremely hard, but it was in a domestic realm, particularly in the coalfield areas. Places like Tyneside North Shields and places like that where there was fishing industries a bit different because there was the sort of ancillary trades to fishing, fish processing, rope making which did allow employment opportunities for women. But it was a man's world in the in the heyday of the industrial northeast, definitely.
0: So it's interesting because what's happened since the war is very much the decline of heavy industry. And so perhaps it's not disconnected to that. But there's also been a revolution in all kinds of what was taken for granted in terms of gender relations, all kinds of things like that. How corrosive do you think those changes have been to the traditional culture that you describe in the book? And how much is the culture of the Northeast still recognisably and distinctively itself?
1: Well, I suppose the this, that sense of patriarchy is probably it was diminishing strongly when when I was a child. You know, I just saw, as I say in the book, the glowing embers really of the heyday of that nuclear family. Pittman going to work, wife staying at home, sort of very strictly demarcated gender roles. That was declining very quickly and is almost completely gone now. I think what's left of the industrial culture is the sociability, the friendliness. Hard to evidence, but, you know, it's anecdotally strong. People always talk about the the friendliness of the North and the sociability factor of which the kind of big night out is just one part of it. There's also the approachability and chatting to people at bus stops and the tail at the supermarket kind of thing that people still notice, which I think came from that sense of extremely close-knit community. It was almost claustrophobically close-knit for a lot of people who couldn't wait to leave, (laughs) but some people really thrived in that environment. So I think that the traditions of sociability, drinking, all that stuff live on, but the patriarchy is probably... It was unsustainable even by the 1960s, as I say, and with the absence now of coal mining completely, there's still a lot of heavy engineering in the north, but it was the, the coal mining bit was probably the most distinctive part, and that's gone now, I think.
0: And so what about the present? I think it's kind of striking that the shorthand for metropolitan disbelief at Brexit is that Sunderland voted for it despite having Nissan. Do you think that Brexit, the experience of it, has widened the sense of mutual incomprehension between the northeast and the metropolis?
1: Yes, partly. I think the people who um, were surprised at it by you know, the reaction of Sunderland, and in fact the whole northeast, it was only Newcastle, which has got its quite affluent suburbs and so on, that didn't vote for Brexit in the northeast. But, you know, I think people probably weren't paying attention. But why would they? Why would they pay attention to the northeast? It's not quite the engine room of the, ki- of the country as it once was. And I think of slight dissatisfaction with the things that have followed the Golden Age, Uh, full employment in coal mines and shipyards and that sort of thing again i'm painting with a broad brush and there's plenty of people who are pleased to see the back of all that but there is a sort of alienation sort of dissatisfaction but also i often think of that quote about britain in the 1960s having lost an empire but hasn't found a role yet the northeast had this clearly defined role as either militarized frontier mustering ground or Dockyard or Arsenal or hearth that warmeth the south parts of fire. Very distinctive role in the world. And those things have gone. Who knows if the border is ever reimposed uh, with Scotland, then you know the, the border rivers might get going again and the hot trod and all that. But uh, that's doubtful. What is the point of the northeast? What is the point of places like South Shields, which were almost a monoculturally coal mining and shipbuilding town in the absence of those things? What is the point? of Hartlepool and Blythe they're trying to reinvent themselves and in fact the tourism aspect might be some of the the more fruitful areas for the northeast to pursue because it has all this history everywhere you turn a landscape thick with dramatic features a beautiful landscape and coastline and so on the sociability aspect that might be our our future Although you sh- I shouldn't underplay that, the, you know, you just got to sail down the Tyne on one of those tours to see the amount of sheds building things. There's still a lot of that in the Northeast. You shouldn't underestimate that bit. But it's not what it was.
0: The book, I mean, it seems to me to combine a, a kind of a deep pride in the incredible history, the legacy, the achievements of the Northeast with a very cool eyed perspective on where there may be problems, where things may have gone wrong. I wonder in terms of how people in the Northeast itself have responded to it, the audience that you've had up there, have they kind of responded to this?
1: It's been uniformly positive, to be honest. And I, I was really surprised at the success of the book. I had no idea that it would, you know, become a bestseller or anything like that. And, and the response has been really pleasing. And, you know, I, get, I periodically get contacted by people who say, you know, one person said, it's the book I've been waiting all my life for someone to write You know, I recognise everything you're saying, or it made me cry. There is a big streak of sentimentality in the northeast. it must be said. And I was looking to press some of those buttons. And they seem to recognise in what I'm writing. They recognise themselves in what I've been writing about. And they've said it's helped us to understand why we are the way we are, which I'm pleased about.
0: So, Dan, we finish every show by asking our guest about one text, be that a film, a book or otherwise, that influenced this book. What is yours? Well, if I take text in its broadest
1: sense, I think you could, you wouldn't go far wrong if you just listened to the lyrics of the Bladen Races, which some people describe as the national anthem of Northumbria. It's sung at football grounds. It used to be sung by both Newcastle and Sunderland supporters, actually, but not anymore to come to be associated particularly with Newcastle. But it recounts the story of some lads and lasses getting dressed up for a day out at a horse race in 1862 and the scrapes and jolly japes they get into. And there was loads of lads and lasses there. All was smiling faces. And I think it's sort of cheery, bonhomie and beer-fueled madness really gets to the heart of some of the things I've been exploring in the book, actually. Maybe have the felling male voice choir performing it. It's on YouTube. I'd recommend that if you wanted to plunge further into Northumbrian culture
0: thanks so much dan i mean as you can tell i so enjoyed the book and i said at the start of the program that the northeast is a place i um, went to when i was young been visiting it all my life it's a place that i hugely love and i'm so glad that you have written this amazing book conveying to incorrigible southerners like me an amazing sense of the fascination the history the culture the legacy of it so thank you so much
1: Well, thanks very much. And I'm really grateful for your support, Tom. And it was really great to chat today. So thanks very much.
0: Afterwards, it is produced by George McDonough. Thank you to Dan Jackson for taking part in this episode. You can buy The Northumbrians now from Hearst Publishers' website. For more, follow Hearst at Hearst Publishers and me at Holland underscore Tom on Twitter. And to get news on the latest Hearst books, subscribe to their email updates at com. I'm Tom Holland. Thank you very much for listening.